I am grateful for songs, like the one we just sang, which point our, our attention and our anticipation onto the day of the Lord, the day of His coming, the day of His return, the day when we will join the saints who have gone before us and receive the crown only to cast it down at the feet of Jesus. It's good. In fact, my favorite hymns, new or old, uh, are those that have uh, something of a journey to them. As the verses carry from one to the next, it sort of often begins with the problem, sin, evil, darkness, our own wickedness and sinfulness. And somewhere, verse 2 or 3, we get to the cross of Christ, how he made a way to reconcile us to our Father. And then the final verse, verses 4 or 5, they often point us to that great sense of anticipation. You know, when he returns, when we are with him. So my favorite songs. And they're certainly fitting on a week like this as we are in part two of part two of a series A series called the, the Law of Love. We're looking again this week at the urgency of love. And so let us read from chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, these verses that we are meditating on for a number of weeks. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For... Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Our gracious Father, we do thank you. It is not a meaningless exercise for the congregation to respond to the declaration, this is the word of the Lord. As we say together, thanks be to God. It is not meaningless, it is the expression of our hearts. Thank you for your word, for through it we know you, for through it we have light and life, for through it we know your law, through it we see ourselves, our great need. Through it, we come to a place of desperation. 
looking at the effects of sin on your good world. Through it, we are introduced to your Christ, your Son. Through it, we read of the amazing miracles that authenticated the message of Jesus, his claims of divinity, and through it, we read the account of his sacrificial death, the giving of his own life, not the taking of it, but his giving of it for our sake. Through it, we are taught by the apostles to understand and apply all the commands of Jesus. And finally, through it, we are made to anticipate that great day when we will all gather together, all the saints, all of God's elect, to offer to you songs Songs that are not mixed with our distraction or our impure motives, but songs that are offered from glorified and purified hearts, free from the presence and the effect of sin. Lord, may your words stir us this morning. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we explored a number of verses by way of introduction that, that summarized the Bible's overarching emphasis on this one absolute certainty. Jesus is set to return. This is not a question of eschatological persuasion. It's not a question of interpretation. It's not one of those, you know, maybe, maybe not Christian liberties. It is an absolute certainty Jesus is going to come again. Now, we spent the better part of our time, in fact, all of it, exploring this simply to, to convince us, if we had any doubt, of not only the certainty of this fact, but the New Testament's borderline preoccupation with this fact. You with me? One in 24 verses in the New Testament deals in some way with the second coming of Christ. One out of every 24. This is not a passing subject matter. It is a glaring, obvious emphasis. We are left, though, pondering this question. What on earth does the second coming of Christ the, the time of the night drawing to a close, the day being at hand, as Paul puts it in Romans 13. What on earth does this have to do with love fulfilling the law? It, it almost seems out of place, doesn't it? And so what we'll have to do is we'll have to work together 
to follow Paul as he connects those dots. He speaks of love toward God and love toward man as being the fulfillment of the law. The keeping of the whole law is made possible through loving God perfectly and loving fellow man perfectly. And then he goes on this, I don't want to call it a rant, this is Holy Spirit inspired, but he does seem to take this detour at verse 11. You know, besides this, you know the time. That's interesting. As if a sense of, a sense of urgency about the days in which the church was living was a, a common point of conversation among the early disciples and church members in the first century. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And all you have to do is read that for a moment like that and you feel the urgency in Paul's voice, right? What in the world does that have to do, though, with love fulfilling the law? Well, I would like to draw your attention, if you'd like to go with me, over to Matthew chapter 26 as we begin to answer that question. Matthew chapter 26, a a well-known portion of the gospel story to many of us, a strange one to some extent, Matthew 26, big chapter, turn with me to verse 36. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. This, after the taking of the Passover meal, the institution of the Lord's Supper, And he said to his disciples, sit here, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. We often picture the disciples over here and Jesus going, as one account reads, a stone's throw away by himself. But then how would anyone know what he said and prayed and the drops of blood from the pressure and the agony? No, the three were with him. The rest were a stone's throw. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going just a little further, a little further, remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, as I will, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And suddenly we, the reader, relate to the problem, right? Full bellies, right? It's getting late into the evening. The sun has set. You're told to watch, maybe, and pray. And what happens? Here, here, God, thank you for that wonderful meal, and thank you for this comfortable seat, and, right? We immediately relate to the disciples. Verse 40, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? And he's thinking, lamb, you know? Mm, lamb and bread and wine. Sleepy time. And so he tells him again, watch and pray. This time, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They were only human. <clears throat> so, he let them sleep. <laughs> Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going see my betrayer is at hand here we find an interesting series of clear contrasts on one side Jesus calls for their attention and they give him sleep he calls for prayer so they might not enter into temptation, right? And the alternative to that is stumbling. Attention, sleep, prayer, and stumbling. And then finally, Jesus talks about a time for action and a time for rest. A time for action and a time for rest. Alistair Begg quips that you don't he says, you don't realize that you've been asleep until you wake up. Happens to me on the couch, especially on Sundays. Right? One minute you're watching the race. Right? Well, they've got to stop and get some tires soon. Oh, look at that. He just turned into the... Right? But you don't know you fell asleep. You know when you wake up, right? <laughs> right? Whew. Whoa. You know? What happened? Whew. And you, you look over to your wife or your son and you go, I, I fell asleep. I didn't know it until I woke up, right? It may very well be, friends, that this week and last, that the word of God is rousing us from a spiritual slumber we've been unknowingly indulging. 
You don't know you're asleep until you've been shaken awake. It's time, Paul says, back in Romans 13, to wake up. Now, why? Well, back in Romans 13 with me. Why is it time to wake up? Oh, Verse 11. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Back in 1983 or 88, John MacArthur was interviewed and he was asked, he said, the interviewer asked him, John, in terms of prophecy, what else needs to be fulfilled before the return of Jesus? And John said, nothing. Any minute now, any day now. And he's, he, he would go on to speak about living with a sense of urgency, writing books with a sense of urgency, preaching and leading with a sense of urgency. And for the last 35 or 40 years, that has maintained in him. Was he wrong 35 or 40 years ago to be urgent about the business? To be urgent about the second coming of Christ? Was he incorrect? Was Paul Ah, you see, Jesus is returning, and that sense of his return, that certainty of his return is meant to produce in us an urgency. Have we been sleeping like the disciples? They on the eve of his crucifixion, we on the eve of his return? The sheer reading and brief consideration of these things causes a stirring in our guts, doesn't it? Perhaps a burning sense of conviction like we talked about on Wednesday evening or perhaps a curious feel of excited anticipation, maybe almost even a a fidgetiness. Jesus is coming back. The time is near. Salvation is nearer today than it was when we first believed. No matter the equation, this morning we're closer to his return than we were when we went to sleep last night. Whether that's another five years, five months, five minutes, 50 decades, which is, of course, 500 years, I think. Don't make me do math up here. 5,000 years, 50 decades? Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> My homeschoolers are like, we know the answer (laughs) because homeschool is good. That's all I'll say on that. No, but it it, it stirs us a little bit, right? Almost like um, I've got to stop even wasting time with this sermon and get on about the business of sharing the gospel. There's no time to sit in the pew. It's time to go and share the word because he is coming The reason why Paul equates these things and puts them together is simple. Genuine love for God and man breeds in us a sense of urgency. Genuine love for God and man breeds in us a sense of urgency. Three things that I would like to note should should be, if you will, brewing in us at the thought of these things. The first of which, if you're taking notes, is a urgent self-reflection. 
urgent self-reflection. Paul, again, in verse 11, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The first point of emphasis when it comes to urgency is you. It's not the gospel. It's not your neighbor. It's you. And that's why I believe the, the first of three things that, that genuine love for God and man ought to breed in us is a urgent self-reflection. It's time to wake from your slumber. The heart which loves God is pained by sin against him. It's cut, it's poked. Either by the weakness of our will or by inattention to our demeanor, when we realize that we have been entertaining unconfessed sin, unnoticed sin, it stings us. May we ask with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. It can be easy to go through a day and to think that, that because we didn't kill anyone or run anyone off the road in a fit of road rage or turn in a dishonest timesheet to our employer or right, manipulate our taxes so that we don't pay enough to the government or steal a candy bar from the convenience store or any of those obvious sins. It can be tempting to think, I was pretty good today. I remember it was in college when I first started praying this psalm. Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, Lord, show me. Right? I'm aware of the sin, you know, that I know about. But I'm, I'm, kinda, I'm in Bible college. I'm in like a bubble here. It's pretty hard to sin here. You know what I mean? You got morning devotions and you got, you got worship before every class. Couple of songs, couple of hippies with a guitar and a little drum, bunch of fruits and nuts out in California, you know. Half the time you go to the lunch hall and here's a couple of very dedicated students. What are they doing? They're not praying or they're not eating, they're praying during lunch. Why? Because they're fasting. And you go, oh, I guess, I guess they're fasting. Ew. You know, boy. <laughs> Lunch is delicious, <laughs> right? Later on that evening, you know, you walk past a group of students, they've all got their guitars and their drums and they're singing worship songs. And you walk down the corridors and, you know, over the hallways are scriptures and they're stamped into the concrete under your feet. They're on the banners over your head. Lights out at 12, make your bed in the morning. It's hard to sin in a place like that, man. And I began to pray this prayer when I came across it for the first time in my life. I, I don't know why I had not read Psalm 139 until I was 18 years old, growing up in the church. I probably had, but it didn't hit me. It didn't hit me until one morning there in, on that beautiful campus. And I began to pray this, Lord, show me. Because I'm too dumb to know. You know, so show me. It's a dangerous prayer, friends. It's a scary one in many respects. Because then when he shows you, then you're responsible. 
right? Now what do you do with that? The return of Christ is meant to breed in us an urgent sense of self-reflection. Lord, search me. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful greeting. And he describes who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus didn't deliver us only from our sins and our sinfulness. He delivered us to make us unique among our peers. Are you? Are you unique among your coworkers, among your neighbors, among your family? Are you unique from the unredeemed around you in the line at the grocery store? Are you as impatient as they, as rude to the barista or the clerk as they? Are you as caught up in gossip and drama within your extended family as your unredeemed family members? Or are you unique among your peers because Jesus has delivered us from our sins to he has delivered us from this present evil age? We're still in it, but we're meant to be unique in it. It's an evil age that we live in, the age of grace. But he also didn't deliver us and rescue us from our sins so that this present evil age might be our favorite. Such that, man, life is so good, the thought of Christ's return is kind of a disappointment. Like, man, I just finally got my sports car, right? I've heard of pastors receiving uh, elaborate gifts from their churches. Um, sometimes it's like a vacation. You know, like the church is like, hey, thank you for 20 or 30 or 40 years of faithful service. Like, here, you and your wife are going to Hawaii. It's on us. We love you right? For those of you who are going to be young enough for my 40 year, <laughs> let's make a little note. <laughs> Thank you. It's a 1972 Chevy C10 pickup. It's got the round headlights and that like wire mesh, like wide grill, orange, that Chevy orange with the white top, okay? I can't tell you how many years I have been trying to scheme my way into having one of these trucks. You can have your 2086 multi-billion autopilot, you know, Bluetooth connected I don't care about any of that junk. Give me a 1972 Chevy C10 fleet side orange with the white. Now, this is not an uncommon thing for men. Women, if you don't know this, just, all right, your man has a car. There's a car, he wants it. It's a particular something. It might be old, it might be new, it might be fast. It might just be the best thing ever like mine. Who knows, right? But he's got it. 
All of you wives can interview your husbands who have never talked about this publicly and say, well, what's the car for you? And they'll go, well, okay. I don't think about it much or what. Right? And they'll tell you. If it's not a car, it's a gun. If it's not a gun, it's a guitar. If it's not a guitar, it's a drum set and the ability to play them. Okay? Uh, but I, I, I just yesterday drove past... There's a point to this, I promise. I just... I just yesterday drove past a beautiful Corvette. I don't care about fast cars. I, give me a truck, okay? But, you know, beautiful, beautiful Corvette. And I'm turning left in my, <laughs> in my 23-year-old pickup coming home from Lowe's, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and there was a gentleman uh, who was easily retirement age there with his wife. And, um, and I thought, hey, you know what? Good for you, buddy. You know? I bet you were once 40 going, someday I'm going to have my Corvette, right? And you worked and you saved and you paid your house off and, and now you can finally appreciate this thing that you've worked so hard and waited so long to have, right? I was happy for him, genuinely. So the question is, if we finally get the thing, if we're this close to getting our thing, our relationship, our special vehicle, our house that's finally just right and fixed up and all the kids' scratches and dings have been painted and fixed, right? If we're, if we're almost there or if we've just gotten it, are we distracted, perhaps, from urgently waiting and anticipating the sound of the trumpet to call us home. I used to think this way. I used to think, um, when I would read as a child, especially growing up in the church, about the return of Christ, I grew up in a dispensational environment, so the, the rapture of the church, suddenly without warning, right, we are called home. And I used to think like this. I used to go, okay, Jesus, I want to come to heaven and stuff, streets of gold, all of it. But I really want to get married first. <laughs> you know, like, there's a lot of things about marriage that sound pretty awesome, you know, especially as a young man, you know, right? You want to you have a wife and you want to have children and a dog. My hero was my youth pastor at 16. He had a wife and a dog, a really funny beagle. And he had a little place, and I thought, that's it. If I can just have that, then, come on, then, bring, let's go. Just let me get the wife and the dog in the house and, like, live and just see what that's like. It sounds and looks awesome. Then, delay no further, Jesus, <laughs> right? But the older you get and the more wickedness you know of in the world, and as you observe the rapid increase of evil all over the globe, such things become foolishness to you, right? You realize how foolish such prayers and such thoughts are, and also not biblical, right? And you begin to pray instead, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, right? The hour has come for you to wake up. And so I implore you this week to take stock. What preoccupies you? Is it the pursuit of the thing that diminishes your anticipation of his return? 
Is it preoccupying you? Or, or how about just things like Fox News? Are you following with eager anticipation the next installment of Tucker Carlson's unveiling of the January 6th recordings? Stay informed, friends. But I mean, have you oriented your whole life around his next broadcast? Well, what about back when the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial was being broadcast? Were you waiting with bated breath? Were you in the middle of your day watching this drama unfold? What are you doing? Jesus is coming back. What are we talking about? Right? I mean, what about your screen time? I learned that your phone has a, it has a, a feature that you can actually track how many minutes or hours you spend on each app on your phone in a given week. I didn't know about this. During a week, perhaps, of urgent self-reflection, maybe we would take a look at that report and perhaps weep and repent because we're wasting time we ought to spend anticipating and making ready for the coming of the Lord. Urgent self-reflection is the first of three, in part because it's the first thing Paul says, but in part because no powerful work of God happens through you until he first does his work in you. It's the order of operations we find here in Philippians 2.13. Paul says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You guys remember order of operations, mathematics 101? First you do this, then you do that, and then that leads you to this. If you try step three first, the whole thing blows up in your face. Order of operations. For it is God who works in you, both to will, that is work on your will, and to work. He works in you, on your will, your will, now refined, produces the fruit. And so let us then echo the prayer of King Solomon, knowing that no powerful work of God happens through us until he first does his work in us. Let us echo the words of King Solomon, where he prays, may God turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and to keep the commandments. O oh Lord, search me and know me. Second prayer, may you turn my heart toward you. Away from the 72 C10, away from the Corvette, away from the hobby, away from the distraction, away from the politics. Right? So search me and know me. Reveal to me. Because Jesus is coming back. Turn my eyes and my desires from these things that are temporal that will not remain. They will not bring lasting joy. Turn our hearts, as Solomon said, to him that we might walk in obedience and keep the commandments. Urgent self-reflection. 
Secondly, I would encourage us to consider urgent reconciliation. Again, Romans 13, 11, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What is salvation? Salvation is reconciliation. That's why Paul says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Who's being reconciled? Sinful man to his father, his creator. Salvation is nearer to us now. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you say, I thought I was already saved. If I've already been saved, how is salvation nearer to me than when we first believed? When we believe, we become saved. What's Paul saying? Well, there's three if you will, waves to our salvation. The first in which we are converted, we are signed, sealed, stamped. We are saved from the wrath to come, saved from the slavery of sin in which we formerly lived, rescued and free. It's the Israelites marching out of Egypt, saved, rescued. However, The second wave is that we are saved into servitude, rescued from a wicked master who wishes for our destruction unto a good master who wills for our holiness and happiness and usefulness. But we're saved into servitude. It is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, you are being saved. So you are saved are being saved, and salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed. You see the three waves? And so you're converted, and then this is God's will for you, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4. The third wave is our glorification. Salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed. That is your glorification. 1 John 3, we read it last week, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, what? We will be like him, right? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When we see him, we will be like him. I love the story. We just read it in my house recently of the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And they walked and talked with Jesus, but their eyes were cloaked from knowing who he was after his resurrection. And he said, what are you guys talking about? They're like, oh, there was this guy, Jesus. We thought he was the Christ, but he's dead. They killed him. Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who hasn't heard about what's going on? Living under a rock? And Jesus said, didn't you know that the Christ has to suffer and die? And then he goes on from the Old Testament through all the scriptures in in what we call the Old Testament and explains to them about the Christ. And then he sits down with them at dinner and lifts up the bread and blesses the Lord and thanks him for it. And they go, it's Jesus, right? Now the scripture reads... He vanished from their presence. So first of all, that's awesome. Okay, he's gone. 
I want to believe that he gave him a little wink first, right? You got it? You know, just a little flair for the drama, you know what I mean? But there's something to that. We will be like him. When we see him, we will be like him because we'll be glorified. We'll be given those same glorified bodies that navigate between the realm of the spiritual and the realm of the physical. That separation from the Garden of Eden that was placed after Adam and Eve's sin will be no more in our glorification. When we see him, we will be like him. The third wave, converted, sanctified, glorified. Or as it has been said, when we are saved, we are rescued from the penalty of sin. As we are being sanctified, we're being rescued from the power of sin. And in our glorification, we will be rescued from the presence of sin. Praise God. I'm so sick of sin messing with my words and my actions and my attitude and my demeanor towards my family, my ability to serve the Lord faithfully, to prepare for the moment like this, to love you with all sacrificial effort. I'm so sick of sin messing that part of me up. I try to do what's good. I want to do what's right, and yet sin is present anyway. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? I'm so sick of it. So looking forward to being free from the presence of sin, even as God now works in us to rescue us from the power of sin through our sanctification and the preaching of his word. Urgent reconciliation. After some soul searching, some self-reflection, our need for reconciliation becomes necessary. The first and, of course, most pivotal reconciliation is to be reconciled to God. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting to us, that is the disciples, and then ongoing, the people of God, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to your creator. That's the gospel. You are separated from him now. Be reconciled to him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I come in the name of Jesus. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you then on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, we, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the first and most basic and fundamental reconciliation that is urgent is your reconciliation to God. Do you know him? In a prayer of Psalm 139, Lord, search my heart and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Is the Spirit saying to you, you've never surrendered yourself to me? If today you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart, as the Scripture says. But the second aspect of urgent reconciliation that I believe the coming of Christ ought to gin up in us is to be reconciled to fellow man. Be reconciled to God and then be reconciled to man. Paul writes to the Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How much of how much forgiveness did Jesus withhold from you? Ten percent? All but this one thing? Right? So forgive one another to the degree that God in Christ forgave you. Friend, do you really want to carry a grudge into eternity? Makes the grudge seem kind of insignificant, doesn't it? I was so blessed to hear a story this week of a church member who, after hearing about the debt of love that we owe to fellow man and the urgency with which these are, things are meant to, to, to stir us, that they, that they made an overture to, a, to one that they, were rec- they, were had, they had, had enmity and tension with for years. So glad to hear this. The joy that came from it. The freedom that came from it. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to fellow man. And then finally, be reconciled to your own conscience. And I love this. I spoke of it last week. Uh, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of this concept. I'm still exploring it. I'm still trying to understand it fully, this concept of our, of our conscience and how it interacts with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and how it is that God gives to us the gift that is so unique to Christianity that we are given a clear conscience. It's such a special thing. I, I haven't even fully understood it yet. And I, and I might be, you know, Tom's age before I do. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hebrews 10.22 Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting Him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Oh, how desperately I want to be called up to heaven with a clear conscience. Whatever you need to do, friends, to be reconciled to your conscience, I encourage you to do it this week. Do it now. Some of the best advice I was ever given about growing in Christian discipline is to start small, but start right away. Don't take a month to map out your plans. Start tomorrow. Don't wake up three hours early at 3.30 in the morning and go, okay, I'm going to read the Bible for an hour and a half, and then I'm going to meditate for an hour and a half, then I'm going to levitate for an hour and a half, right? No, just, just get up 10 minutes, 30 minutes earlier than usual. Start small, but start right away. When it comes to being reconciled to your own conscience, start small, but start right away. Whatever it is that comes to mind, whatever meaningful or meaningless, seemingly small thing, area of sin that you're carrying with you day over day, address it. Do it now. Pray, even as I preach. If you put your head down, I won't call you out for falling asleep, but pray. Get on your knees and bow in the pew. I don't care. Walk out the back door and stand in the rain and cry out for forgiveness. Do it now. If today you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. Don't wait to be reconciled to your own conscience. As the Spirit convicts you, pray. Acknowledge it. Realize it. 
Make up your mind right now, Christian, that this week you'll be reconciled to your own conscience. The lust of your eyes, which deadens your sensitivity to the spirit and convicts you in the heart, say along with the psalmist, I will set no unclean thing before my eyes. See to it that your overindulgence of food is repented of, that your laziness at work is repented of, that your treatment of your family members is repented of, acknowledged. Men, lead your families in family worship. Stop going to bed with a guilty conscience. Don't you want to be free of that, dads? Where you get the kids in the bed and you lay down and you go, we didn't read again. Steve's been talking about family worship for I don't know how many years. Didn't do it again tonight. Don't you you want to be free of that burden? Do it. Not out of legalism. Look, he has freed you. You are free from indulging in that sin of laziness. Read the Bible over your wife, over your children. Spurgeon calls this living near to the cross. Listen to this. Spurgeon says, friend, live near to the cross and you will not sleep. Work hard to impress yourself with a deep sense of the value of the place to which you are going. If you remember that you are going to heaven, you will not sleep on the road. If you think that hell is behind you and the devil is pursuing you, you will not loiter. (laughs) The man can preach. Would the innocent sleep with the enemy in pursuit? And the city of refuge before him? Christian, will you sleep while the pearly gates are open, the songs of angels waiting for you to join them, a crown of gold ready for your brow? And he finishes out, ah, no! Exclamation point. <laughs> Urgent self reflection. Urgent reconciliation to God, to man, to your own conscience. And then finally, number three, if you're taking notes, urgent proclamation. Urgent proclamation. Look at me, verse 12, chapter 13. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. There's a lot of things that this might mean. One thing it certainly seems to indicate is that Paul believed that the, bless you, sorry, I couldn't help it, that the cycle of humanity, that more, listen, more is behind than is ahead. This is the implication behind this verse. And this is the most, most faithful rendering of this that I can find. That Paul was convinced that there is more human history behind him than in front of him. And we are 2,000 years beyond that point. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Well, friends, if that's the case, we had better stop tiptoeing around with that coworker and just tell him about Jesus. R.C. Sproul, before he passed, he said, if we love people, we will warn them of the consequences of dying in their sins. Amen. 